A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is this not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to you. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall, so shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts, but you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. 
You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. This is the word of the Lord. The book of First Samuel contains a story that acts as a great illustration of this morning's passage. Eli was a, a high priest of Israel. He was a judge, and he had two sons who served as priests. Their names were Hophni and Phinehas, and they were serving in the tabernacle at Shiloh, uh, but instead of upholding their responsibilities as priests, their, their sacred priestly duties, with reverence and with devotion, they indulged in corruption and dishonest practices. They were described as worthless men who did not know God. Hophni and Phinehas abused their priestly privilege for personal gain. They showed contempt for the offerings that were brought by the people. They, they took more than what was their rightful share from those offerings for themselves. They ignored the proper procedures for sacrifices. And worse yet, they engaged in immoral behavior with the women who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Their actions dishonored God's name, to put it mildly, but their actions also led the people of God astray from God as well. And they were misrepresenting God and critically undermining the foundation of Israel's calling to live as God's redeemed people among the nations. So God's wrath was kindled against Eli's sons and their wickedness. He sent a prophet, an anonymous prophet, to Eli with a very stern warning for him and his sons. He revealed that Eli's lineage was going to no longer be serving as priests because they made a mockery of God's worship. They did not fear him. They misrepresented him. God would end Eli's priesthood and raise up a new faithful priest who would serve God with fear and with reverence. And that prophet would be named Samuel. God's leaders and servants are entrusted with a profound responsibility. The weight of their actions has a very real bearing on the spiritual well-being of a, of a community. Hophni and Phinehas weren't just failing at their job. They were actually making a mockery of the sacred calling to lead people toward God through right worship and ethical guidance. The account of Eli's sons reminds us the, the need to rightly fear and rightly honor God, to highly value the gift of worship, and to stay close to God's word so that we don't take his name in vain. So that was some 600 years before the time the prophet Malachi was ministering, the prophecy that we read this morning. A lot happened during those 600 years. Because of Israel's disobedience, God led them to be exiled, to be removed from their land, that promised land. Babylon took them over, uh, and they were attacked and taken out for about 70 years. But at this point, they had been returned back to that land they were exiled from. And they'd been back for almost 100 years at this point, actually. And over those 100 years after they had been returned to their land, they started to grow cold, indifferent towards God. They'd become hypocritical and skeptical and disobedient. And so God comes in as a father would and should to challenge and to correct and to confront his people. And then he promises to reward those who are 
patiently and faithfully prepared to receive his Messiah at the end of the book. Now, the structure of this book, as we talked about last week, is built around questions and answers. And you can see that in today's passage. It's essentially six dialogues from beginning to end of this book. They're disputes between God and his people that are mediated by this prophet. And each of these little interactions has about three elements to it. There's three elements. The prophet gives a statement from God, which is usually about the attitude or the behavior of the people. And then the prophet anticipates Israel's objection to that statement. And then he provides a response to that objection. So it's a statement, an objection, and then a response. So here's the dispute from today's section. The statement is, God's servants, his priests, do not honor or fear God. You see it in the first part of verse 6. The objection, they ask for examples. How have we done that? Well, then he spends the next portion of this passage, up until chapter 2, verse 9, responding to that. God rebukes their rotten worship and corrupt teaching. So we'll break this down this morning in two points, under two sections, the remainder of chapter 1 and then the beginning of chapter 2. First, rotten worship requires repentance. And then second, corrupt spiritual leaders guide people away from God. And the big idea that ties these principles together this morning is this, positively articulated. Rightly loving God is expressed through genuine worship and word-centered discipleship. You might have noticed as Mercher read this passage that these verses are addressed directly to Israel's priests. Uh, And so we might be tempted to sort of let ourselves off the hook and say, well, none of us are Israel's priests, so maybe this doesn't have to do with us. Uh, Israel's priests, of course, served a unique role in redemptive history. They were those who taught uh, and facilitated worship for Israel, God's covenant people, uh, by offering sacrifices. And now in the new covenant, we're not offering sacrifices anymore. Or are we? 1 Peter 2.9 says the church now is God's royal priesthood, uh, that we are a holy nation, that we are a people for his own possession. Romans 12.1 says that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. So I'd like to suggest right off the top that this actually does apply to you and I. We are, like priests, offering our lives, our bodies, our whole existences as living sacrifices to God. And so as we read through this and as we study through this this morning, be thinking and reflecting on your own life in those terms. God rejects empty worship and false teaching. And so let's pray now and ask the Holy Spirit to help us to recall our desperate condition apart from Christ so that we might rightly value God and his word. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity, the pleasure, the privilege to be able to gather with your people here this morning. We ask that you would help us by your your word and your spirit to rightly value what's happening in here this morning. Father, would you help us take this seriously? We see that you take it seriously. We confess and repent that we often treat worship trivially, uh, apathetically, and so we ask that you would help us to correct that now. 
We do love you. And we'll pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. First, rotten worship requires repentance. So I, I chose to state the big idea that unifies this section as a positive statement. But what we're learning in the text itself is actually by contrast. It's very, very negatively spoken. In this first section, which is the, the rest of chapter one, the prophet is focusing on their rotten worship. And we'll just look at this in, in three parts. First, from verses six through eight, undervaluing worship undervalues God. Undervaluing worship undervalues God. Let me just read these verses back into our hearing. Starting in verse six, a son honors his father, a servant his master. If then I'm a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, well, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? says the Lord of hosts. So if we look back to the first five verses of this book, we'll, we'll see that it begins with a declaration from God himself. He says, I have loved you. He's been steadfast and faithful in his love for his people, but their, their perspective is way off. They hear that from God and they, they doubted it. Oh, how have you loved us? And then in this next section, God actually calls them out for despising his name. And again, they object. They doubted that they were despising his name. What are you talking about? Well, again, their perspective is way off. And so God brings some clarity and he brings some specificity. A father, a master, or a lord uh, is due honor or fear just by the virtue of the position. Uh, humanly speaking, we ought to have respect for people who hold positions of authority like bosses or parents. And yet these priests have no honor or respect for the highest authority of all, the authority that they are meant to be representing. He even goes so far as to say that they despise his name. Despise. You might notice that God's name comes up a lot in this passage, the phrase God's name, despising my name, my name will be made holy. A name reflects a person's reputation. So if you mention somebody's name, it calls to mind all that that person represents. You recall their character. When God revealed his name to Moses, he was revealing his character to Moses, who he is. And so these priests, whose responsibility was to treat God's name as holy, are actually doing the exact opposite. They are despising his name. So to despise something is to look down on it with contempt, to, to treat it as being worthless. Maybe you recall that episode from the life of Jacob and Esau. When Jacob tricked his brother Esau into getting his, his blessing, the family birthright, Esau was out hunting or whatever, and he comes in super hungry, and Jacob's got some bread and some lentil stew, and Esau's just desperate to get that food. And so Jacob says, well, I will give you some bread and lentil stew if you give me the family birthright. And Esau said, what use is a birthright to me? I'm hungry. Let me just have that. I'm about to die of hunger. A birthright's not going to be any good to me if I'm dead. And so he trades his, his birthright for a bowl of stew. Just to be clear, the birthright would have been a part of a double portion of the family's wealth. 
Uh, it would have meant authority over the family, the household, leadership, and spiritual responsibilities and blessings. And he traded all of that for one meal. In Genesis 25, Moses says, and thus Esau despised his birthright. He despised it. And so there's an illustration of what's happening here. These priests are despising God's name as counting it as being worthless. So that's the posture of their heart. That's made evident by what they're willing to offer in their sacrificial worship. What is it worth? Well, it's worth these lame, blind animals. Deuteronomy 15 makes it clear that animals with a serious blemish, like if it's lame, blind, it shall not be sacrificed to the Lord your God. This is what God's word says, which is what the priests are meant to be reading and instructing people in and defending and upholding. And yet these priests were offering blind and lame animals when they knew they weren't supposed to. So if you sacrifice something of little value, it reveals that you think of God as having little value. Verse 8, God says, try giving your earthly authorities the animals that have little value. How would that go over? Do you think they would be honored by the same things that you're offering to me? Well, why do you think I would be honored with that? And so it is a question that we might be asking of ourselves as a kingdom of priests. If you gave your bosses the same level of dedication that you're giving to the Lord, how would that go for you? Would he be pleased with your your tardiness, your absence, apathy? Worship that costs little reveals a heart that values God little, which is to despise his name, thinking little of him, almost an indifference toward God. And indifferent, apathetic worship is actually worse than no worship. We see that in the next verses from 9 to 10. Apathetic worship is worse than no worship, verses 9 through 10. And now, entreat the favor of God that it may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Uh, Entreat the favor of God is more literally seek the face of God and beg for his grace. Remember that God is a personal being. You might have forgotten that. But he says it would actually be better if there was even one priest, even just one priest who would recognize that this worship, the whole priestly system now has become corrupt. Uh, it's become rotten. It's become weak. The priesthood is horrible. Let's, you know what, just lock the doors and keep everybody out so nobody has to play a part in this. It would be better to shut the whole thing down, to cancel everything, than to have half-hearted, empty, vain, indifferent, apathetic worship. God takes no pleasure in weak, empty formalities in worship. We don't offer animals in worship, lame or otherwise. And so what does this mean for us as Christians? Well, if our body, uh, Romans 12, our entire person is meant to be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him, 
This warning does still apply to us, but we have to think carefully about what that means. So the priests were cutting corners. They were trying to see how little they could get away with and yet still be sort of giving lip service to honoring God. Their actions, casually and dismissively going through the motions of offering sacrifices, actually revealed a heart posture that had no respect or awe or fear of God. So the question is, what do you have to offer to God? Perhaps it's the the greatest of assets that we all each have, our time and our attention. Do we bring the best times of our day and the best portions of our attention to the Lord? Do we prepare for the Lord's service on Sunday morning during the week by reading through the sermon text? Praying for your brothers and sisters who will be joining you at that gathered worship service. Praying for the preaching of the gospel. Or maybe even sacrificing your ability to sit in on that worship service in order to let a parent come and join. Watching over some kids so that someone else would have the benefit, the privilege of sitting in gathered worship. Showing up early to look for organic, natural moments to connect with someone. Offer prayer and encouragement. Singing actively, singing boldly. Singing is an expression of our covenant relationship with God and our submission to his will. I know it might seem like a small thing, but singing is no small thing. These actions, which again may appear small and insignificant, actually reveal a posture of heart that recognizes what we're doing in worship is a big deal. So we can think of that, of course, in terms of our gathered worship service here together, but it's not, uh, obviously it's not meant to be the sort of thing that you squeeze into your schedule if you have time. I know I'm preaching to the choir, y'all are already here, but the choir needs preaching too. I need this. Gathered worship is not something that you squeeze into your schedule if nothing more important pops up. But for the Christian, thinking not just of gathered worship, if all of life is worship, well, the bigger question is, a bigger responsibility, how can you bring honor to God's name in the liturgy of your life? By living in a way that would ordain the gospel, adorn the gospel as a high-valued greatest prize, rather than something that is simply a despised, worthless token. So what does that look like in your life? I, of course, can't answer that for you. But you can ask right now the Holy Spirit to help you, illumine your heart and mind, how is it that you might be giving more honor to God in the liturgy of your life. Maybe spend some time thinking through the implications of that for you. The way to stir up that level of appreciation, though, uh, uh, the privilege of what we get to do in worship, is to rightly understand what worship even is. So let's consider that in the next verses, verses 11 through 14, where we are, I think, instructed and told that we should value worship as a foretaste of the world to come. We should value worship as a foretaste of the world to come. 11 through 14 say this, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted. And its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. 
But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what's been taken by violence or is lame or is sick, and this you bring as your offering. Should I accept from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Worshiping God the Father, through God the Son, by the Holy Spirit, is the goal or the target, really, of all history. That's where everyone is heading, as we even sang this morning, all creatures of our God and King. Notice that three times, just in this one passage, God says that his name will be great among the nations. So this is at the beginning and at the end here. From the rising of the sun to its setting is a poetic, metaphorical way to say from the east to the west, from all day long, morning, noon, and night, all of it is going to be in every place and in every time filled with the worship of God. And so God is giving Israel here uniquely a sneak preview of what the future holds. So for centuries and centuries, Israel alone was uniquely given the the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, and God provided a way for his glorious presence uniquely to abide with Israel as a people group. And their system of sacrifices is what is referred to by the worship that was given to them. That system of sacrifices and ritual cleansing was meant to be a physical, dramatic enactment of the problem of sin in light of God's holiness. It was a picture of God's initiative providing a way to fill that gap between a holy God and a sinful humanity, to allow sinful people to celebrate his mercy, to glorify him, and to enjoy him. Eventually, from their lineage, the lineage of Israel, would come the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And when Jesus the Christ came and lived and died, he, we understand now, was the unblemished lamb who would be offered as a sacrifice to make atonement for sin. It would become clear that he was what all of that sacrificial system of Israel was pointing to, anticipating a shadow of. He would be the true and better high priest who would offer himself as a sacrifice to bridge the gap between a holy God and a sinful humanity. And he would begin to draw all men to himself, not just Israel. And so now, on this side of the cross, this side of the coming of the Holy Spirit, through the revelation of God's gospel, the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is now great among the nations. That's what's happening here now. We are the nations. And so through Christ, by the Spirit, those who are approaching God by faith have a pure offering to give through that great high priest whose name is love and ever lives and pleads for us. The privilege of entering into the presence of a holy God belonged to Israel, but now it has been fulfilled in and through Christ. And there will come a day when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is where history is heading, where one day sin and sorrow and rebellion will cease. His name will be feared among the nations. 
in the greatest way possible. But when we get to gather together on Sunday mornings, in times like this, what we're getting is a glimpse of what that future will look like. It's as if gathered worship is an echo from the future bouncing back into the present. As simple and as imperfect as our gathered worship services are, they are at their best a foretaste of heaven. Now, it's not to say that you'll be sitting in a pew forever, but we will be experientially wrapped up in passionate gratitude for the mercy and grace of God who would save a wretch like me. But we don't often think of worship on those terms. We sometimes think of worship services as something that a church is supposed to figure out how to design in order to craft it to satisfy people's desires and preferences, which gives the impression that humanity is actually the point of the gathering rather than God. And so it shouldn't be surprising when we undervalue worship, we undervalue God, and we become indifferent, and we think of the whole thing as a weariness. I guess I can wake up and go to church. Like, if their services aren't even really that great. Like, I don't know if I get that much from it. It's very different than I'm excited to go bring my sacrifice of praise because of what God's done for me in Christ. If worship is not seen as a privilege, it becomes an empty duty. There's no desperation, there's just drudgery. Snorting at it, not even hiding it. calling it a weariness. Just remember, says God, that his name will be great among the nations. It's not a threat, it's a promise. You're getting a foretaste of the world to come by worshiping God the Father through the Son by the Spirit. Act accordingly. Notice too throughout this passage that God refers to himself as the Lord of hosts. It's 11 times through this section Lord of hosts means the God of angel armies. That means he's in charge of all cosmic authorities and powers, the title of authority. And he is speaking with that authority as he's rebuking the priests. So let's turn now to chapter 2. We'll see second, corrupt spiritual leaders guide people away from God. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And we'll just do the first four verses first. We see the Lord rejects corrupt spiritual leaders Chapter 2, verse 1. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you won't take it to heart, give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already cursed them because you don't lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. Wowzers. So these priests now have been undervaluing God's grace, which is evident by the way that they're acting, uh, underestimating their own sinfulness and the need for sacrifice, underappreciating God's mercy. And so like Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, God was going to remove them from their position. He's rebuking them and their offspring. The priests were meant to prepare the animal sacrifices for the sanctuary. And as a part of that preparation of the animals, they were meant to clean those animals. So you can imagine it like cleaning a fish. You remove the entrails, 
in order to purify and clean the animal. Those internal parts are the unclean parts of the animal. And so you would take those out. The entrails is essentially what it is. And our ESV translates that here as dung. Uh, It is the unclean parts of the animal. And so what's happening here is God is making evident through his language that he takes his own holiness seriously, even if the priests don't. And so here in this hyperbolic language, he's speaking metaphorically of considering the priests themselves as being covered with that uncleanliness in his own sight, and so they're removed from the holy place. They are unfit to serve in God's holy sanctuary. And there is a tribe of Israel uh, named after one of the sons called Levi. And so Levi was the, the tribe that priests would come from within Israel. That's what the allusion to the covenant of Levi is here. The agreement was that these priests were supposed to teach Israel the law. Uh, they were supposed to offer intercessory prayers for Israel on their behalf. And then in turn, they would be protected and supported by the other tribes so that they would be able to give themselves to that calling. Well, these priests were not giving honor to God's name, and so he would, he would replace them. They didn't honor God in their heart, and they misrepresented God, which is the exact opposite of what they were called and instructed and set apart to do. And we keep reading verses 5 to 7. What they were called to do is made clear here. Good spiritual leadership guides into life and peace. Good spiritual leadership guides into life and peace, verses 5 through 7, starting in verse 5. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me, and he stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So this covenant with Levi uh, is a reference to, to the ministry of the priests in general. The covenant of Levi is talking about this relationship, this agreement with this, these priests. And we see clearly laid out what they were called to do. This is what they were meant to do here. They were to fear God, and they were to stand in awe of his name. Those two things are synonymous, fearing and standing in awe. So if you've ever stood at the Grand Canyon or at the base of a large waterfall or under a moonless night sky in the middle of the desert, you kind of get some small idea of what that awe and fear feels like. They rightly understood God's holiness and their sinfulness, and they felt small, and they felt overpowered, they felt subdued, which is where they should have been. And they were to give true instruction, walking with God in peace and uprightness, and turning many from iniquity. So the priests were supposed to guard knowledge, which of course came from God's law. The Levitical priests, uh, those from the tribe of Levi, were meant to provide spiritual leadership and oversight and guidance for this nation of Israel. And so they're supposed to exercise that responsibility and authority well. And if they did that, they would lead God's people into life and peace. That's what we find here. Well-being was meant to be the result of this good spiritual authority in the lives of God's people. Flourishing for God's people 
through forgiveness and atonement. Worship was meant to result in people leaving with the knowledge that they were blessed by being at peace with God through a sacrifice for sin. That's the purpose for which God appointed these priests. And I would suggest that the the goal of our worship service here this morning is very similar. Uh, We would love for you to leave with an assurance that you can be at peace with God through repentance and faith in the great high priest who is Jesus Christ, who ever lives and pleads. If you've not put your faith in Christ, talk to me after the service. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you that faith now. Pray, repent, believe. Don't leave this morning without that. Notice that their ministry, the the ministry of these priests, was a ministry of the Word. A ministry of the Word. Uh, The true instruction that would come from their mouths would be the knowledge that they're guarding and keeping, which comes from God. You see that clearly articulated here. So their, their responsibility as these priests was to diligently study and understand and know God's Word so that they would know what is good and acceptable and pleasing to God. And that applies directly to us, friends, as a kingdom of priests. Anyone who has a place of spiritual direction uh, or, or teaching or spiritual influence must fear God and maintain fidelity to His Word. Priests or not, a big, beautiful garden would have to be continually cultivated and watched and guarded. If a garden isn't watched and carefully cultivated over time, it becomes dilapidated. It's neglected, overgrown, decaying. So if you have this big, beautiful, lush space, it can become overgrown with wild, tangled weeds now that are coming in. And the, the path that he would set out in this beautiful garden would be obscured by fallen leaves and debris that falls on, onto them. Maybe the fountains and the ponds no longer running. Uh, they're covered in algae. The colors on the flowers and the plants that once bloomed through there now have faded. They're all muted. There is no color. What happens is nature reclaims that space that was carefully cultivated and cherished. And in a similar way, if God's word isn't guarded and diligently kept, sinful human nature will creep in and overtake it. What does it look like when the true instruction of God's word isn't guarded? The most uncomfortable aspects of God's word will become minimized and then rejected. The holiness of God, the sinfulness of man. What does that sound like in the church? J. Gresson Machen, writing 100 years ago this year, sums this up actually very well. Uh, If we don't need atonement for our sin anymore, uh, what we're gathering together to hear on Sunday mornings really is just good advice. We don't need repentance, we just need some encouragement. And so he articulated this perversion of God's gospel like this, quote, you people are very good. You respond to every appeal that looks like it's working towards the welfare of the community. And and now we have in the Bible, especially in the life of Jesus, something so good that we believe it's good enough, even for you, good people. So it really just becomes merely about doing good. 
which dismisses our helpless condition under sin and undermines the need of a Savior. There's no mention of the cross. There's no mention of repentance. And as a result, many are not turned from iniquity, which is their sin, which is what he says in verse 6. This is the result. Good spiritual leadership guides into life and peace by guarding the uncomfortable portions of God's Word. Those who defy those responsibilities to to guard God's Word then are held under contempt by God, and that's what we see in verses 8 through 9. C, the Lord has contempt for His leaders who defy their responsibilities. Verses 8 and 9. But you have turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. So these priests are giving up their responsibility, uh, and as a result, they have led people into stumbling by their instruction. Uh, The only way to make sense of that, causing people to stumble, is if they were deciding to encourage people to stay in sin. We have the common metaphor in the Bible of walking and stumbling. Uh, God provides the path of blessing and obedience by His Word. That path, of course, leads to God Himself, and He gives us His Word, and then He provides prophets and priests and kings and teachers to, to guard that Word, that it might lead people to Him. And yet, inevitably, we each have turned aside from that way. And when people who are in places of spiritual leadership, who are meant to be speaking messengers of God, begin to change that word and don't guard that word, they cause people to stumble as they're walking along that path toward God. It's a metaphor uh, for, for failing in the life of faith and obedience, stumbling. Verse 9 says that the priests were showing partiality in their instruction, partiality what could that have looked like? What could that have meant? Well, we know that partiality is just being biased towards someone, showing favor to one person, not having equal judgment for both parties. James talks about showing partiality towards those who are rich, which is a very common temptation. People who are rich and appear wealthy and powerful often are given partiality. These priests were more fearful of these men and women than they were of God. Or maybe these priests were were accepting the blind and lame sacrifices of these certain powerful people, these members of the community, even though they knew better. Well, I don't really want to contradict this powerful, rich person. This happens so not only with people who are rich and powerful. Sometimes it happens with people who are just near and dear to us. We might be tempted to reinterpret the Bible because it's uncomfortable for those whom we love. We might call evil good and good evil if it means that we can sort of alleviate the stress or burden of a particular sin of someone that we love. But that partiality, which might come from a place of compassion, causes people to stumble. They take a teacher's instruction to accurately represent God's Word, and as a result then, they don't turn from that iniquity, but they continue in it and stumble. And they think that they're free to sin with God's approval. That dishonors God. And so as a result, God would dishonor these priests who were leading in this way. They despised God's name, but there would come a day when they would be despised by those same people whom they feared and whose favor 
they were seeking. Effective, godly spiritual leadership demonstrates a fear of God rather than a fear of man. It guards and teaches God's word faithfully. It's marked by obedience and a call to repentance from sin and forgiveness through atonement. Without solid teaching, worship becomes a meaningless ritual. There's no transcendence. There's no need for amazing grace. And the message of Christianity becomes devoid of all meaning. Richard Niebuhr summed this up, this idea of a Christless, crossless Christianity in one sentence. It's a God without wrath, bringing men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That's corrupt. Corrupt spiritual leadership guides people away from God into rotten, empty worship. And it is evidence of something going on internally, a posture of heart that is undervaluing God's amazing grace. Rightly loving God is expressed through genuine worship and word-centered discipleship. When we make worship about ourselves, it gets easy to despise it. When it's genuinely about celebrating redemption from the wages of sin, it becomes impossible to ignore. Thanks be to God for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.